I'd ask you to open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 16. Exodus chapter 16. Last week we saw Mara and the first incidents of grumbling. This week is the wilderness of sin, the second incidents of grumbling. And next week is Massa and Marabah, the third instance of grumbling. So we're on a grumbling kick with Israel in the wilderness. But let's pay attention to this chapter, especially to the complaint. The complaint is just astonishing. Verse 3, Oh, that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt. Chapter 16 of Exodus is about regretting your salvation. When you're sorry for Passover, sorry that God did not send the angel of death and kill you, Instead, he saved your life and brought you out into his service. So, pay attention to how God responds to this complaint. And they journeyed from Elam, and all the congregation of the children of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the fifteenth day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. Then the whole congregation of the children of Israel murmured against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the children of Israel said to them, Oh, that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the flesh pots and when we ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a certain quota every day, that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. And it shall be on the sixth day that they shall prepare what they bring in, and it shall be twice as much as they gather daily. Then Moses and Aaron said to all the children of Israel, At evening you shall know that the Lord has brought you out of the land of Egypt, and in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, for he hears your murmurings against the Lord. What are we that you murmur against us? Also Moses said, This shall be seen when the Lord gives you meat to eat in the evening and in the morning bread to the full. For the Lord hears your murmurings which you make against Him. What are we? Your murmurings are not against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses spoke to Aaron, Say to all the congregation of the children of Israel, Come near before the Lord, for He has heard your murmurings. Now it came to pass, as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the children of Israel, that they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, I have heard the murmurings of the children of Israel. Speak to them, saying, At twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread, and you shall know that I am Yahweh your God. So it was that quails came up at evening and covered the camp, And in the morning the dew lay all around the camp. And when the layer of dew lifted, there on the surface of the wilderness was a small round substance as fine as frost on the ground. So when the children of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, This is the bread which the Lord has given you to eat. This is the thing which the Lord has commanded. Let every man gather it according to each one's need, one omer for each person according to the number of persons. Let every man take for those who are in his tent. And the children of Israel did so, and gathered some more, some less, 
So when they measured it by omers, he who gathered much had nothing over, and he who gathered little had no lack. Every man had gathered according to each one's need. And Moses said, Let no one leave any of it till morning. Notwithstanding, they did not heed Moses. Some of them left part of it until morning, and it bred worms and stank, and Moses was angry with them. So they gathered it every morning, every man according to his need. And when the sun became hot, it melted. And so it was on the sixth day that they gathered twice as much bread, two omers for each one. And all the rulers of the congregation came and told Moses. Then he said to them, This is what the Lord has said. Tomorrow is a Sabbath rest, the holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake and boil what you will boil and lay up for yourselves all that remains to be kept until morning. So they laid it up till morning as Moses commanded and it did not stink, nor were there any worms in it. Then Moses said, Eat that today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, which is the Sabbath, there will be none. Now it happened that some of the people went out on the seventh day to gather, but they found none. And the Lord said to Moses, How long do you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath, therefore he gives you on the sixth day bread for two days. Let every man remain in his place, let no man go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. And the house of Israel called its name manna, and it was like white coriander seed, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. Then Moses said, This is the thing which the Lord has commanded. Fill an omer with it to be kept for your generations, that they may see the bread with which I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. And Moses said to Aaron, Take a pot and put an omer of manna in it, and lay it up before the Lord to be kept for your generations. As the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron laid it up before the testimony to be kept. And the children of Israel ate manna forty years until they came to an inhabited land. They ate manna until they came to the border of the land of Canaan. Now an omer is one-tenth of an ephah. Let's pray. Father, give us the strength, the stamina to listen to your word. Help us to understand the issues, your definition, your response to complaining. Father, above all, teach us not to complain. Teach us not to regret our salvation. We thank you for your overwhelming provision for our forefathers and your overwhelming provision for us. Help me to speak boldly. Help us all to listen and obey your word and to shun complaining. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. People bring a wrongful life lawsuit against God in this chapter. That's a real lawsuit. You can actually do this. There's wrongful death, of course. But there's also, at least in the American legal code, a wrongful life provision where you can sue your parents or sue the hospital where you were born or something like that and say, that shouldn't have happened to me. I shouldn't be here. You need to pay me a large sum of money for wrongfully inflicting this life upon me. And 
Why this suit exists, I don't know. But it's an illustration, or it's the same kind of thing that God's people did in the wilderness of sin. Obviously, the word sin in Egyptian or in Hebrew doesn't mean the same thing as the word sin in English. But God knows what the word sin in English means. He chose the name of this wilderness. And in the wilderness of sin, there was a lot of sin going on. And the premier sin that happened there was this sin of grumbling, and especially grumbling about wrongful life. We shouldn't be here. We wish that there had been no Passover, that the angel of death had come and struck us down. Now that's quite a complaint. That's a complaint for the ages. I wish I was dead and that God had done it to me. So God hears this complaint in our chapter and God responds by defining the terms. God says, okay, wrongful life, huh? Well, I will tell you what a wrongful life is. A wrongful life is a life that doesn't obey. You are wrongfully alive if you will not walk in my law. Verse 4. I will test you whether you will walk in my law or not. Those who won't obey the law of God probably are wrongfully alive. That is, they should be dead. They should have been killed by the angel of death. So God defends himself against the wrongful life lawsuit by saying, let's see if you obey me. If you're obeying me, then actually you're rightly alive and you have nothing to complain about. And if you're disobeying me, then maybe you are wrongfully alive. Maybe we'll arrange your death, which he does later, of course. He lets the whole, that whole generation die in the wilderness. So that's the issue in this chapter, the wrongful life lawsuit. And God says to his people, if you obey me, then that shows that you're rightfully alive. And I was right to send Passover, and I was right to save you. So let's look at this in a little more detail. Where are they? They're in the wilderness. Verse 2 makes it clear they're in the wilderness of sin, or verse 1, the wilderness of sin. Verse 2, they murmured in the wilderness. We already know that they're in the wilderness. That was clear from the previous chapter. Moses mentions it twice more to let us know these people are in the wilderness. And what's the wilderness? It's the place where you depend entirely on God. There is the other things that you depend on are not there. Your other coping mechanisms are not there. In the wilderness, you have God and you have nothing else. So what's the result? Well, often the result is a whole bunch of sin. So they're in the wilderness, and they start to grumble. They issue their first complaint, Oh, that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt. I wish Passover had never happened. I wish... 
God had not saved me. You ever felt this way? Wish I was still an unbeliever. Unbelievers can get away with this sin that I'm really tempted to sin right now. Unbelievers don't have to forgive people who hurt them and wrong them. Unbelievers are allowed to get out there and take revenge. Unbelievers don't have to evaluate their motives or criticize their own hearts. Unbelievers can just do whatever comes next. There's all kinds of reasons that you might regret your salvation. The one that the Israelites bring up is the diet. When we were reprobates, slaving for Pharaoh, we had enough to eat, and now we don't. God, you should have just killed us then. Now, hunger makes us do strange things, but this is certainly a strange one, to quarrel with God and be angry at him that he saved you. God, I hate that you delivered me from Egypt. Well, how does God respond? Well, God responds, and that's the bulk of the chapter, verses 4 down to 30, with a test. And the test is the test of obedience. Will you walk in my law or not? And God says, essentially, you say you're wrongfully delivered? Well, we will know whether you're wrongfully delivered by whether you obey me. If you walk in my law, I was right to deliver you. If you reject my law, then yes, you are wrongfully alive. And the angel of death should have taken you. We don't have to get into that negative side because by and large the people learn. The people do walk in God's law by the end of the chapter. God says, here's the test. I will send bread and I'll make you gather it. That's the test. And in fact, the test has four parts, which we'll see from verse 16 onward. Will you gather? Will you share? Will you trust God? Will you take the Sabbath off? Four different layers of testing with regard to God's provision and then the obedience that he demands relating to that provision. But before that, God says, here's what the test will show my people. And there are three things that the test will show. The first is that God actually brought them out of the land of Egypt. This was not a fluke. This was not Moses' superior manipulative skills or incredible leadership. God brought them out of Egypt. Thus, verse 6, Moses and Aaron said, At evening you shall know that the Lord has brought you out of the land of Egypt. When you get fed by God in the wilderness, when you get tested by God as to whether you will obey him with regard to what he's feeding you, then you know that he was the one who saved you. When you can depend on nobody else, when you're unemployed, when you're homeless, when your savings are depleted, and yet God continues to take care of you, that's when you know, God is caring for me. Or we could say, in spiritual terms, when your sin has really come before you, and you realize, there is no way to get rid of this on my own. I can never make up for this. I can't make it right. It's a sin that's done and gone and there is no way to go back and undo it. It's going to be on my conscience unless and until God deals with it. 
And if he does, if he forgives you, then you know, God actually saved me. God actually delivered me from bondage to Satan. Well, that's the first lesson that they'll learn. God really saved. The second lesson is what complaining is complaining about. I think of old old Finn. I don't think he has a first name in Mark Twain's The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn. Huck's dad. What was his signature line? You call this a government? He would say that all the time. Whenever something would set him off. You call this a government? And that was his favorite thing to complain about. The government. They were no good in Pap Finn's eyes. And he could go on and on at length about the errors of the United States government. Well, God forbid that any of us should have that same skill or give that same tagline. But what does Moses teach the people? You want to complain about the government? You think you're complaining about your boss, your spouse, your kid, your job, your church, you name it. The real target of complaints is not any of those things. The real target of complaints is always and only the Almighty. And thus they say it in verse 7, they say it in verse 8, The Lord hears your murmurings against the Lord. What are we that you murmur against us? Verse 8, The Lord hears your murmurings which you make against Him. What are we? Your murmurings are not against us, but against the Lord. You want to complain? You have a problem with the way things are run? At the end of the day, your problem is with God. Take it up with the Almighty. So allegedly cops and jail officers like to say to the inmates, tell it to the judge. Well, Moses says, take it up with God. That's who you're complaining about. The problem is not the government, your spouse, your church, your boss, the tax man, whatever it is that you are complaining about. Your issue is with God. That's what complaining is. Complaining means saying, God, you bungled this one. God, you didn't live up to my standards this time. You failed to set this up the way you should have set it up. This isn't correct. In fact, this is all wrong. Grumbling is a way of saying, God, I don't like your providence. I hate your plan. I don't appreciate your methods. You have gotten it wrong this time. Does that make any sense? To cry out against God and say, you don't get it. God's answer is always going to be, no, you don't get it. You don't see what I'm doing. You don't understand the plan. How could you? And if the Almighty is really the Almighty, if He's really omnipotent, if He's really omniscient, then He's going to know more than you do. And His plan will reflect that deeper knowledge. So it is here. He brings the congregation in the wilderness to test them. And he says, you have to learn that if you're complaining, your target is not the ostensible subject of the complaint. Your target is God himself. 
This is why it's utterly inappropriate for Christians to complain. To walk around with a bad attitude and to grumble and say, you call this a government? That is a heinous sin in the sight of God. And so Moses tells Aaron to summon the congregation to come before God and God manifests himself in his glory. They, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. The pillar of fire presumably blazes up with a lot more fire than is usually there. God says, you have a problem with me? I'm right here. I'm a consuming fire. I am ready to burn you to a crisp. Right? Come tell it to my face. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, I have heard the murmurings of the children of Israel. I will give you meat. I will give you bread. And you shall know that I am Yahweh your God. And that's ultimately the issue with complaining. You know God as Redeemer. You know God as the one whose providence has led you to exactly where you are with the government you have, the spouse you have, the job you have, the life you have, the kids you have. And therefore, you know that God. The issue is the knowledge of God. Knowing Him as the Father who provides. Knowing Him as the one who brings you into the wilderness and takes away everything that's not Himself. Knowing Him as the one who brought you out of Egypt. That's the occasion of the test. Those are the issues involved in the test. You say, God, wrongful life, you shouldn't have saved me. And because this is the book of the knowledge of God, God says, no, you will know who I am. And when you know who I am, you won't say, wrongful life. You won't say, you should not have saved me. And notice, too, the kindness of God. They're complaining. They're hungry. And so God says, I will give you food. God doesn't have a contrarian streak in him where he says, oh, you're hungry? You have no idea what hunger is. God hears their complaints. He hates grumbling. But he says, I will give you food and then I will test you. So he gives the food. Quails come up in evening and cover the camp. Verse 13, in the morning, dew comes on the ground and there's manna to eat everywhere. God gives meat. God gives bread. Pancakes and bacon. Ham and sandwich or pieces of bread, right? Different, whatever bread and meat you want to think of, that's what he gives. Manna and quails. So God is going to show himself as the God who provides. And against, it's against this background that the test is administered. They're in the wilderness, but they have everything they need. And it's once they have meat and once they have bread that God says, all right, here is the test. There are four aspects to the test. Four different sectors in which you need to obey with regard to this provision. Well, the first, first piece of the test is, will you gather it? Verse 16. This is the thing which the Lord has commanded. Let 
every man gather it. God will give you provision. You have to go out and collect it. He won't leave it toasted and buttered and sitting on the counter. It's out there. It's on the ground. You have to leave your tent and go out and collect enough for everyone in your tent. An omer for each person according to the number of persons. Let every man take for those who are in his tent. So that's the first part of the test. You say you're hungry. You say I don't provide. Well, here's bread. Will you go and gather it? And most of the people of Israel passed the test. The children of Israel did so and gathered some more, some less. So the first part of the test, yes, they get it. They go out and they gather the bread. And so God is building his case against the wrongful life lawsuit. God is saying, will you obey me? If you obey me, then you're rightfully alive. Oh, you gathered the provision? Hmm, looks like you might actually be rightfully alive. There's no such thing as sanctified laziness or godly loafing. God has provided for us, and he provides for us by sending us out to collect the living he's put out there. One of the most important tests, in other words, of rightful versus wrongful life, is whether you are working hard in your vocation. If you're sitting around and refusing to gather the provision that God has made for you, that's when you cry out and say, wrongful life, why did you save me? I hate my life. Well, get out there and gather God's provision. That's how God responded to this first. And then the second question is, will you share? Verse 18, when they measured it by omers, he who gathered much had nothing over, and he who gathered little had no lack. There's different ways of interpreting this verse. And some say it was a miracle. They all gathered the same amount, or they all gathered exactly as much as they wanted. But the way Paul quotes this verse, the one who gathered much had nothing over, the one who gathered little had no lack, he indicates that it means they shared. If I have too much, I give to the guy in the tent next door, if he has too little. If I have too little, I go to the tent across the street, and I ask, could I have some of your manna? And they give me some. That way, everyone has the right amount. Will you share the provision? How is that fair, that everyone who has more has to share more? Well, the answer, it's fair because it's more blessed to give than to receive. It's more blessed to be the philanthropist than to be the charity case. If you get to give away more manna, you are more blessed than somebody who has to receive more manna. Just as, in terms of caring for an old person, it's easier to be the one who wipes the rear than the one who gets their rear wiped. It's easier to give. And it's more blessed to give. That's what this verse is telling us. So God tests our obedience. Will we gather it? Once we've gathered it, will we share it? Each man gathered according to each one's need. So then the third part of the test. Moses says, don't hoard it. Don't try to bring home a ton and stuff it into the back of the tent so you have some for tomorrow. It will rot. Don't gather too much. And some of them gathered too much. 
and they keep it all night, and in the morning it's full of maggots and stinky. Will you trust God for the provision? Or will you say, oh, I have bread now, I'm going to keep enough to keep me going for a long time. Give us this day our daily bread. I think I mentioned to you that uh, I got a missionary funding request not long ago saying, we are having this outreach and we would like to have everybody contribute so that this outreach is fully funded for five years. Well, that, in my mind, is the exact contrary of the spirit of Exodus 16. Let's hoard it up. Let's make sure we have everything we need for a long time into the future. God is not opposed to saving. But in this case, he was teaching the people a lesson. If your trust is in the contents of your larder, then your trust is not in the Lord. It's very simple. And so in order to make sure their trust is in him, God just rotted everything that was in their pantry. Will you trust me? Or will you trust your reserve food supply? You're afraid of dying of hunger? Well, let me take away your extra food so that you can understand that it comes from me. This goes for us today. Let's say that you think, ah, well, my job is secure. I've got a great solid employer, great pension scheme, nothing to worry about. Right, one of the largest, most successful companies in American history, Montgomery Ward. I work for them. Or I work for Pan American Airlines. Or maybe Blockbuster Video. The Hudson's Bay Company, the East India Company. Right, none of these companies exist anymore. Because if your trust is in your employer to provide for you, with not in the Lord who provides for you through your employer, you don't get it. That's why God rotted the manna that they were trying to hoard. The test of obedience in this case with wrongful life is, will you trust that God will continue to take care of you for the rest of your life? Actually, God was going to supply the manna for 40 years. That's bread six days a week through the year 2061. Now, the vast majority of us in here hear the year 2061 and we say, I'm good. I'm set for life. God will take care of me till, you know, till I don't need it anymore, till I'm dead. <coughs> That's what the congregation didn't know. They didn't know that God was going to give this every day for 40 years. And they didn't want to trust Him at first. They started to hoard it. Don't hoard. God still exists. He's still providing. Trust Him to be the one who provides. Finally, and the long, this is the longest sector, section of the chapter, the longest test, will you take the Sabbath off? The second part of the test on hoarding is, will you trust God for the seventh day? So on the sixth day, they gather twice as much bread and it's not clear why. Maybe they knew that they needed twice as much. But seemingly they gather twice as much. And then Moses announces, yes, it's a Sabbath. Gather twice as much. It doesn't stink. So six days gather it. 
on the seventh day there will be none. And of course, some of the people go out on the seventh day to gather. They don't trust God for the Sabbath day. They say, okay, we can't hoard it overnight. Fine, we won't keep any extra on the sixth day. And on the seventh day, there isn't any. What is God saying? Well, the Sabbath is fundamentally a way of saying, I trust God to provide for me. I don't need to work seven days a week. I can take a day off. In fact, I must take a day off because God says to. God says that he will provide you with seven days of food from six days of work. And to work on the seventh day is a provocation to the Almighty. Verse 28, the Lord said to Moses, how long do you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath Therefore, he gives you on the sixth day bread for two days. Well, this is the fourth part of the test. Will you obey God? Will you keep his commandments or not? This is the final part of the wrongful life suit. We're wrongfully alive and God says, I've given you a day off. Something Pharaoh did not do. Here's the seventh day. You don't have to work. In fact, you may not work because you trust God to provide for you, to give you enough for seven days in six days. And if you do that, if you keep the Sabbath, if you trust God to provide, if you share, if you gather, then you show that you are rightfully alive. God did the right thing to save you. You shouldn't have died by his hand in Egypt. He brought you out of Egypt. And the test results work. The people learned to gather. The people learned to share. Verse 21, they gathered it every morning, every man according to his need. And verse 30, they learned to rest on the Sabbath. So the people rested on the seventh day. By and large, there were some hiccups, but the vast majority of Israel learned to obey. Those who had grumbled at the beginning of the chapter by the end are realizing, yes, I am rightfully alive. It wasn't a mistake that God saved me. It's not a problem. It was the right thing to do. That he brought me out of Egypt, that he spared me on Passover night. So how will you know that you were rightfully saved? If you regret your salvation, what do you need to do? You need to obey God, and specifically with respect to your vocation, gathering your provision, sharing the provision, not hoarding, trusting God, taking the Sabbath day off. All these are ways of showing, yes, I'm rightfully alive. I'm rightfully saved. I'm glad God delivered me from sin and Satan. There's a little coda of five verses on the end of the chapter. The outcome, we're told the name of it, manna, the, its taste, what it was like. It's like coriander seed, like wafers made with honey. Where did it live? Well, there was a pot of it kept 
near the Ark of the Covenant in the Tabernacle of Meeting to say, God provided for us and we're going to commemorate this through the ages. God provided for them for 40 years, verse 35, and the size of the provision, well, an omer is one-tenth of an ephah or about half a gallon. Everybody gathered half a gallon, roughly. So a 2,000 calorie diet, they got the amount that they needed. God's provision is huge. And when you're regretting that you were saved, obey God, and then you won't regret it anymore. Then you'll know that you were rightfully delivered. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are vindicated over against the complaints and quarrels of your people. We pray that you would help us to trust you for your provision. To show that trust by our generosity, by not hoarding what you've given, but by sharing what you've given, and by taking your holy day and keeping it as a holy day, and not making it a work day. Lord, we praise you for your gifts to us, your grace to us, your provision for us. Help us to learn that the earth is yours. To learn that we really have been saved. To learn not to complain. And to know that you are the God who provides. That the righteous eats to the satisfying of his soul. But the belly of the wicked will be in want. We praise you for that. In the name of your son. Amen.